Well, Chris, I was hoping to talk to you about sleep right now. I um, I don't know. During this whole quarantine, I feel like my sleep went. It's finally improving after like forty days. I realized recently that that quarantine actually just means a period of forty days, um, <laughs> and 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 so I I've been pretty self isolated. But I, th- there's something about, I mean, me and, and the family, that is. I haven't been going out. We postponed a whole tour and everything else. But um, I, I there's something with my deep sleep in particular. But I, I'm waking up. I was feeling more tired. And and now part of this could be, and I haven't talked to you about this yet, but I, I started doing a little bit of testosterone therapy because oh. my, my, my test was really low. And that has been, I, I don't know if you have any experience with that, but it has been amazing. Uh, I mean, my testosterone was, was low, but it wasn't like abysmally low. Right. It was like 500. And oh, 500 is not bad. That's kind of the bottom end of what we consider to be pretty good. You know, more is not better with testosterone. The men with the highest testosterone are in jail. You know that, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's my goal. That's where I'm trying to make it. Well, you should have said in that case, carry on. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, well, yeah, they're in jail and in the NBA. So also, yeah, maybe. Um, I mean, you imagine a LeBron James. I'm just trying to think of like who is the the, the physical specimen. Uh, LeBron James at age 19. I bet his testosterone was 1900 or something. Yeah, um, maybe. But, uh, but my point is that testosterone, at least exogenous testosterone, can override the prefrontal cor- cortex, which is the part of the brain that helps you do the right thing, right? And so, when it's even when it's the harder thing to do, and so that's why I say the men with the highest testosterone are in jail, is because they have so much testosterone that their prefrontal cortex doesn't work, and then they end up killing somebody in a road raid incident or something like that, you know? Yeah, well, I'm not doing like shots or the implants or anything like that. It's just testosterone cream, but yeah, it is uh, exogenous, and I... I, I, I'm telling you, man, this has been like the missing piece for me. Like, uh, but I, it may be, I don't know if that's affecting my sleep or the quarantine, but I've talked to quite a few people and they're saying the quarantine has really screwed mm. up their, their sleep. And I don't know, maybe there's an anxiety or something there that's doing it, but I don't feel any anxiety from this at all. Mm. Like I, I feel the opposite. I feel a calm and a stillness and I feel like I'm thriving during this. I feel better than I have in a, in a long time. And I think part of that has to do with, with the hormones, but I, the other big part is my, my gut continues to heal and I've been working with you oh, for great. several years on that. And, and you know, that, that as I'm getting better, I'm realizing that health is, if you have health, everything else is sort of window dressing. Right. <laughs> it's true. It's so true. And then when you don't have health, you only want one thing, right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's the the Confucius quote, right? Like the yeah. the, the happy man wants ten thousand things, the uh, or the healthy man wants ten thousand things, the unhealthy man wants just one. <laughs> exactly. And and so let's talk about sleep. I, you you did this podcast recently where you I, I won't say debunk that's too too big of uh, yeah, too yeah, negative of a word, but challenged uh, Doctor Matthew Walker's book Why We Sleep, which I actually find to be a, a informative and and somewhat pivotal book pivotal book. Um, and I've seen it help quite a few people understand the importance of sleep, but, right. but you, you think there might be some problems with it as well. Yeah, for sure. There's definitely some technical problems with the book. And I go over that in detail with Greg Potter, uh, who's a sleep physiologist, just defended his PhD in sleep physiology a couple of years ago, but it was re- we worked through Alexi Guzzi's article, which is very good. You can read about that if you're interested in the technical details, but yeah, you're right. I think that 
you know, the net positive is probably significant with Matthew Walker's book. And but really, it's important to understand who it's for. You know, if like if you're someone that's having trouble sleeping, I'm not sure I'd recommend Matthew Walker's book. If you're someone that hasn't yet recognized the importance of sleep, then it might be a better book. And actually, you reminded me the conversation about testosterone. That was one of the first experts I interviewed was Dr. Kirk Parsley, who was doctor to the Navy SEALs. And he talks about how exogenous testosterone was not practical for the SEALs, but uh, more, getting more sleep possibly was, right? And so, but the, but the, two, the two interventions have a, a similar outcome, which is increased testosterone. Well, yeah. So, so the, the sleep thing, I think someone like me, especially back in the corporate world, I don't think I realized, in fact, I thought sleep was kind of silly. Right. And I thought it was a sign of weakness. Yes. Like, so for the, at that point in your life, that was when you, you know, Matthew Walker's book would have been great. But if you've already, if you're already wearing an aura ring, I don't believe that Matthew Walker's book's going to help you. Yeah, I, I think that's true. If you're already doing things to sort of optimize your sleep, then, then maybe it will stress you out a bit more. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because there's a reason why it's not, you don't need selling on it. There's a reason why you still can't sleep. And that of course might have changed with the, the recent pandemic. Uh, obviously it's extremely stressful, perhaps not so much for you, but for most people, their brains are just not wired for this uncertainty or any kind of infinite timeline that extends beyond the horizon. And this is really easy to understand with the, the desert island analogy. Imagine you were stranded on a desert island and I was to say to you, I'm going to be back in two weeks with more food, right? So I hand you a chest of food and say, this is what you got for two weeks. I'll be back in two weeks with another chest. Like, but, uh, so that's not that stressful. If I give you a chest right. of food and say, I'm, I don't know when I'm going to come back. Maybe never. Like that, our brains are just not wired for that and they go completely mm. crazy. And so it's very stressful to some people. But obviously, you have all kinds of stress coping tactics under your belt. And so maybe this doesn't bother you quite as much as the average man on the street. No, in fact, I feel like I've been preparing for it in, in a way. You know, it, it's funny, Ryan and I just finished up our next book. It's called Love People Use Things. And I, and I wrote a forward to it at the very end because I finished it in the middle of this this pandemic and basically saying, like, I wish this I would have had this published this book right before or sometime mm. before this pandemic because I didn't realize it at the time, but in, in a way I was sort of writing a pandemic preparation manual. Mm. Uh, but, and it's really about intentional living, you know, and, mm. and our relationships, not just with others, but our relationships with ourselves, like relationship with the truth, relationship with the, with, um, our values, relationship with money and, 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 and fixing these things so we can have greater you know, sort of external relationships. And as, as we, we wrote that book, like I, I realized that I had, I had spent the last decade or so with this whole minimalist thing, preparing for unintentionally preparing for a time like this. I certainly didn't anticipate a, a pandemic, but um, I suspect that you're in a similar situation where, where right. your life isn't so appreciably different from no. six months ago. No, we're a bunch of unschooling, minimalist, stoic <laughs> mm -hmm. people. You know, my wife sleeps in a tent in the garden. We've got this expensive house and it's only expensive because it's somewhat close to Silicon Valley. You know, it's the cheapest house in the Bay Area, but that ain't that cheap. But <laughs> I, I sleep in a van, a Euro van in the pop top. Uh, just because we like being closer to nature and also stimulus control. So I think this is really relevant to what's going on for people right now and sleep. And then my wife is the same reason. She's sleeping in a tent in the garden because absolutely nothing else can happen in the tent, right? We've got a two-year-old boy. And when he goes into the tent, he knows exactly what's happening. We're going to sleep. We're not 
reading books. We're not playing with toys. We're not digging holes in the ground. We're just going to sleep. And I think that's the problem that people are facing right now is they've been forced to do all these different activities in the same space, right? It used to be that you go off to work and once you got to work, you know, that the environmental cues meant, well, this is what's happening now. We're working, right? Like that's the, probably the only thing that happened at work. And then now you've got to do work in the living room and you've got to eat in the living room or maybe you're, you've got a home office in your bedroom. And so now you're working in your bedroom, but also your bed is in there. So, mm-hmm. you know, when you go to sleep, you've got all these environmental cues that are telling you something other than sleep. And I think that's a huge problem. So actually, do you know what? I got the idea from Bloomin' Rich Roll. Do you remember we did that interview with Tommy mm-hmm. and Paul Saladino and Rich Roll? And during mm-hmm. that interview, the Rich four, Roll, uh, yeah, the four of you. Well, I guess I was I was a weird yeah. spectator in the corner. Oh, that's and right. You you weren't. I mean, you've been on the podcast before, but you yeah, you were hanging out in the corner. We had a, a studio audience of one. <laughs> exactly. I didn't think I had anything to add to that con- that conversation, but yeah, in that interview or conversation, I should say, Rich Roll said, "Oh yeah, I've been sleeping in the garden in a tent. It's great." And that's where I got the idea. And I started sleeping in the Eurovan, popped up in the garden, loved it. And now my wife is sleeping in a canvas tent. I bought this bell canvas tent in the garden. She's sleeping in there on top, like a normal bed frame with a a queen size mattress, normal mattress in a box type thing. So it's not expensive at all, but it's glamping, right? It's like not like you normally think of as camping. Sure. But but this, I mean, this sounds like their entire sitcoms predicated on your situation um, Mm. where where you have, you have your wife in a tent, you're in in, uh, some glamping situation, Mm. uh, you have your son in one place. I, I assume your daughter's just on a running around in the garden <laughs> at night or something. I, I don't know what's going on there. Your, she your bounces daughter's backwards like, and forwards. Sometimes she sleeps in the tent with my wife, and sometimes she sleeps in the pop top with me. And, and so the house? Are you like Airbnb-ing it out or something? No, there's no one in the house. So recently, like literally last weekend, we talked on the podcast before about co-housing. So I, I did that podcast, and a previous podcast guest, Megan Sanctuary. Uh, she'd been on the podcast before talking about human milk oligosaccharides, and I resist the temptation to go into those now, but it was a really good interview. Her and her husband, after they heard that podcast, they moved out of their rented place in Chicago. They bought a 40-foot travel trailer and a new truck to tow it, and they drove all the way from Chicago to come and park this trailer in our garden and live with us and do co-housing. So now we've got two families living together on the same property. I've got a two-year-old boy and a six-year-old girl, and they've got twins, a boy and a girl aged two. And so they're sleeping in the trailer. I'm sleeping in the van. My wife's sleeping in the tent. There's actually nobody in the house. So it's super weird. We've got two families living on the same property and there's still nobody in the house at night. <laughs> uh, the, the, if there's a spectator that came up, they would think your house is haunted. Um, <laughs> yeah. Now, now uh, have you talked to Chris Ryan about um, the, all the land that he bought uh, and all the land that's available? Because they're, they're doing this, this cohabitating thing out in Colorado. I don't want to give away the city. Yeah, um, I did. So Chris Ryan was part of my inspiration. And, you know, I went on from reading his book, Sex at Dawn and Civilized to Death. Chris came to my place here in Santa Cruz and we did an interview. And in that interview, and in his book as well, actually, he cites an anthropologist called Sarah Hurdy. And I went from Sarah Hurdy, Mothers and Others is an amazing book that everybody should read. And then I found Kristen Hawkes, who was cited in the Hurdy book. And Kristen Hawkes has done a lot of work on the grandmother hypothesis. And so I had Kristen Hawkes on the podcast. And it just all came together like this tapestry. It's like, holy shit, what are we doing with the nuclear family? It's just a, such a terrible idea. So that was kind of how this whole thing came together. But yeah, you're right. I should get back in touch with Chris Ryan and say, hey, what's going on? Like maybe because it's just nuts. The house prices and the property prices in 
the Bay Area here in Santa Cruz in California. This is completely crazy. Yeah, but where he's at, it's it's next to yeah. nothing. And he bought a large plot of land, but apparently there's there's quite a uh, a bit more going on out there. And uh, he's not interested in creating a, a cult or anything like that. He, yeah. he wants Nor no power whatsoever. Yeah, um, exactly. So that's, that's what people say to me, like, well, how is this different from a commune? And I think the answer is it's not wild, wild country, right? Which is a fantastic documentary I'd recommend anybody watch. But so I'm, I'm hoping there's no guru, right? Like the, the anthropologists they use, and Chris Ryan actually, use this word egalitarian, right? Like it's like, yeah, that's what we're gunning for, not masterminds. You know, I mean, and you you know me really well. I'm I'm the opposite of this. I I, I hate camping. I I and my wife loves it, but like I I have I want nothing to do with it. Um, I want to sleep in my bed. I want to live in the city. I want to uh, not sneeze in nature. I, I but I it's almost like to, to each his own. Or to each her own, and what whatever whatever works best. Well, and I've what I've learned works well for me is I still spend a considerable amount of time outside in the sun and walking. That's why Southern California works so well for me is I get so much sun and so much time to walk, and the weather is nearly perfect. But also, uh, I don't have to um, sleep in a in a camper van. <laughs> I sort of agree with you. Yeah, I, I guess you have to kind of drill down a bit more and understand what exactly it is about camping that you don't like. Because, you, I mean, I don't really like camping either because it's really uncomfortable sleeping on the ground. I'm stoic, but not that stoic that I do, yeah. you know, like these deprivation experiments and practice disaster, you know, like, okay, I'm just going to sleep on the floor for a while. So I appreciate the comfort of my mattress. I'm not very good at those. And uh, I'm a side sleeper. My shoulders hurt. So I need my inflatable mattress. <laughs> and uh, you know some creature comfort so maybe the word glamping is better than camping <laughs> i mean i don't i just don't i mean it's weird for me to say this but i'm just not a big fan of nature like i hate uh. the beach like i don't want to get sand in my feet <laughs> it's gross and like it stays on you and it, so you can take a whole shower and it still ends up in your bed at night like i don't know <laughs> and uh yeah i don't know i'm i'm, I'm the exact opposite from ryan in this respect to um, does all the outdoor sports and, and everything else. Yeah. And, and, and I appreciate it. And I, I just, I, I'm, I'm not into it. Like, in fact, I, I can appreciate the beauty. Bex and I were driving around. We had to get out of the house, but of course with the, the quarantine, we, we weren't like going to go out and interact with people, but we drove up to Ventura County, uh, a week or so ago. And, we were driving up the Pacific Coast Highway through Malibu, and it's beautiful, and like all these beaches. And I, I get that it's gorgeous, but she has this sense of wonderment and awe. Mm. And as soon as we like got out of that, and we ended up in like an office park somewhere, I felt yeah. my anxiety go away. <laughs> and I, I, I don't know why. I, I know there's something like wrong with me. I, but I think you're a new modern human. You're like a new <laughs> generation of human well adapted to concrete i don't think the rest of us uh, poor souls are still stuck with this overwhelming desire for nature and to be part of nature you know yeah yeah maybe that's it i i i do believe that i am the anomaly and i think most people <laughs> will benefit from, you know, from spending it's, time in nature it's funny you should say this because there's a connection here i i was did an interview with tony prezak of the endurance planet podcast with julian abel who's a 
retired palliative care doctor that's done some really fantastic work on compassionate communities in in the UK. And the word nature comes up a lot. And I'd recently reread uh, John T. Capocho's book, uh, Loneliness, which is a classic. He's a sort of preeminent researcher in the field of loneliness. And unfortunately, he died a couple of years ago. But he cites this English philosopher whose name escapes me now. But he talks about how nature is connection. And it's demonstrably true because you think at every level in biology, the absence of connection causes dysfunction, right? It doesn't matter whether you're talking about inside of the cell or in an organ or an organ system or an organism or even at the population level. Like anytime you disconnect those discrete entities, you get dysfunction. So in a way, nature is connection, right? Like, and I know that you're also an introvert, right? You thrive in your own company, which I find also slightly unusual. Well, I don't, I mean, I think it's probably, it is unusual in the sense that the majority of people are extroverted or, or, or skew extroverted, but of course mm. that's a spectrum as well, right? It's not of binary. And right. Although I'm way, way, way on the other side of the, the spectrum, like close to a hundred percent introvert, um, and spend vast majority of my time alone. And although I, I didn't used to, I spent most of my twenties around people and mm. I, I, it calls a great amount of, of discontent and anxiety. And in fact, I, try to pretend I was an extrovert for a while because I think we conflate social competence with extroversion mm. and and but I think the opposite is often true some extroverted people are completely socially incompetent and mm. that must also be a, a sort of miserable life mm -hmm. you know Cal Newport was really fantastic on my podcast pointing out the flip side of the same coin which is a deficit of solitude so it's not just the problem being an absence of connection it's also an absence of solitude so you know any time that you do have on your own you've got the white earbuds as a pacifier you always like to use that word pacifier don't you right and then yeah. the, the the lock screen notification hell right so you don't even get 30 seconds to process your own thoughts because there's always input from another mind coming in i think that's a problem too one of one of the i won't say happiest times because that word is overused and in our new book i i, I my favorite passage is where I go in and I try to describe the difference, what I call the well-being continuum. Mm -hmm. We have we, pleasure, which is the, the most sort of ephemeral. There's nothing wrong, inherently wrong with pleasure unless it gets in the way of, of well-being, which it often does. We know that. You know, We can eat a bag of candy and it's pleasurable, but it's mm -hmm. not good for your well-being. Um, and, and then uh, the other sort of places on that continuum, there's pleasure, there's happiness, there's contentment and there's joy. Mm. And I try to put some definitions around those words because I think we often use those words interchangeably. Mm -hmm. we, we say joy when we actually mean pleasure, you know, but then um, we, we mistake pleasure as sort of being the highest virtue. And of course, that's, that's just hedonism. And, and I don't think hedonism works in any, any meaningful way, at least not, not long term. And, and so I, I'm wondering if, uh, I don't know, if, if there's some sort of, uh, we're talking about balance there and you're talking about the stillness or, or solitude as, right. as, as Cal Newport would, would call it versus you know, community and, 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 and everything else. And I'm thinking of the times where, where I was, where I was happiness. It's quite often the times when I was least connected. And what I mean by that is these sort of ephemeral connections um the when i was 31 years old i so this is 
almost a decade ago now, I, I did a, a series of experiments when I first embarked on, on this whole minimalist thing. I, I got rid of my TV first, and then I got rid of home internet, uh, and then I got rid of my cell phone. And you learn a special kind of loneliness because you have removed those, those pacifiers, but there's a, a greater sense of contentment when we've removed the distractions as well. Mm. Do you struggle with any distractions, Chris? <laughs> to the kids mostly. It's funny you should say that. Yeah, I think there's a... We, I've noticed it amongst, especially amongst our friends here in Santa Cruz, that if it's not the phone, it's the kids, right? So people doing this helicopter parenting thing where you just stood over the kids the whole time and you can't talk to anyone because they can only go seven seconds without looking the, at the child, right? And so it's another form of, another weapon of mass distraction, you might say. Uh, and Indeed. I've been thinking a lot of recently about, uh, you know, Simon, I did, Simon's our performance psychologist and he did this mental coaching session on Zoom for some of our clients and friends. And he talked about the deficit model of happiness. And actually you touched on this a little bit with your interview with William Irvine on living a good life and stoicism. And Simon talked about how you can't really have a perpetual state of happiness, right? Like you have to experience some unhappiness in order to experience the happiness. Right? Like, and actually, yeah, it, Chris, it, it, Chris Ryan's been super good on this as well. Like it's, it's something you feel, it's the contrast, the juxtaposition that you notice. And, uh, you know, the problem with what parents do today is they use this term lawnmower parenting, right? Where you kind of shape mm. the terrain perfectly for the child rather than allowing the child to overcome the terrain but the problem there is you've just taken away the thing that makes the child happy right like they just it's a bit like being on lithium you know you just iron everything out so it's just completely flat so you yeah, have I been thinking about that as a lot as well that's probably my main distraction now is the is the kids like trying to resist the temptation to intervene like i think i can improve the outcome mm. yeah the, the 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 happiness thing that, that resonates especially with relationships because we need a certain amount of time apart. It needs to be on. It needs to be off. It, it's in many ways, it's a lot like a, a turn signal on your car. Mm. The only way you know the turn signal is working is when it's not working. All right. <laughs> because if, if it were to work, be on a hundred percent of the time, it wouldn't be a turn signal. It'd just be a brake light. <laughs> yeah, and that's and right. so, so it, it works and then it doesn't work and then it works and it doesn't work, but that's how it's, how it's working and happiness is is the same thing if you're happy perpetually that's not happiness that's mania and right. uh, that's not a place where any of us want to be well that, so the, the, the so this is where there's great hope for the current situation like if you're currently struggling with uh, unwanted thoughts and feelings then maybe this is just the your brain growing stronger right and then when all this passes and i think it will pass then you're going to be a newer and better stronger human as a result. And so there is something to be hopeful for. I think that's a great place to end it. Chris, thank you so much. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity.